Hello, fellow OCD warriors. I'm Christina Orlova, your host on the OCD Whisperer podcast, your trusted companion in the battle against OCD. If you're like me and understand the struggles of living with OCD, then you're in the right place. But before we dive into today's episode, I want to tell you about something incredible. Get your OCD survival kit today at www.onlineocdacademy.com. It's filled with amazing resources to aid you in all things OCD, whether you're on a tight budget or just looking to supercharge your progress. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to OCD Whisperer Show. Today with me, I have Michelle Massey, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist, and she has been treating OCD for over 15 years. Ms. Mazi has a private practice in Los Angeles, where she specializes in CBT to treat OCD, OC spectrum disorders, and other anxiety disorders in children, teens, and adults. Previously, Ms. Mazi was the um, Associate Clinical Director at the UCLA OCD Intensive Treatment Program. She also worked in the UCLA Childhood OCD Anxiety and Tick Disorders Program, as well as their Adult Anxiety Research Program. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So uh, that's amazing. I did not know that you did all of that with uh, yeah. at UCLA. That's yeah. a pretty known program, the UCLA OCD Intensive yeah. Treatment yeah. One. Yeah. So I worked in the adult program for uh, 12 years. And then the, I met the people who run the kid program through that and um, was working with them for many years and left there to be able to have two offices in LA because I was just, I couldn't do two offices and have two clinics at UCLA. Um, but I learned so much from both experiences, both just the like what life is like in an IOP setting, as well as like working with kids versus adults and like. Um, and the kid clinic, uh, they've got two different setups. They've got the IOP and then they have, um, or actually three different setups. They also have um, a research-based program and then a like a weekly clinic. And the research-based program is where I primarily worked. And so I got to see treatment or treatment and research on OCD, on tick disorder, on family accommodation. And so I learned so much there. It was actually a very good experience. That's really cool. Yeah. Well, then you are an incredible person for this. Uh, so <laughs> one of the questions that I have actually comes from a listener, but also, you know, these, it's really two questions, but these questions I find are really something I hear quite often. They're really common, whether through, you know, somebody DMing me or emailing or just even through seeing clients directly. So the first question that this person had was, you know, is there a difference between automatic and intentional thoughts. Mm-hmm. Is there even such a thing as intentional thoughts? And I'm I'm going to kind of go on a limb here and venture out. Probably this person is speaking about their intrusive thoughts. And yeah. I would imagine they're probably nervous around, oh my gosh, yeah. like, did I intend to have that thought? Or is there some secret mm-hmm. intention there somehow, you know, which of course, then if you're an OCD person, you immediately are going to go to, oh my God, then that means that's my desire potentially, right. or I want that, or, right. oh my gosh, I'm horrible or whatever else. So right. I'm right. going to start speaking, but yeah, let's hear what do you think. So the first thing I want to point out is some of your listeners have maybe heard this phrase. It's called thought action fusion, where we have a thought and we believe that because we had our thought, either it causes or it makes us that person, right? I Because I have the thought this typically what we consider a bad thought, 
it means I'm just as bad as a person who would do those things, right? So if I have the thought, oh my God, what if I you know, kill you? Um, I'm as bad as a murderer as opposed to, wow, I had this thought, right? In general, we have thoughts. Um, and I, I learned a couple of years ago, we have like 60,000 thoughts a day, right? And some are very intentional in that, like, okay, I'm going to sit down. And um, on Sundays, I sit down and I meal plan for the week. So I very intentionally have thoughts about what I'm going to purchase the grocery store when I go and what food we're going to eat. Very intentional thoughts about that. Um, on the other hand, I also throughout the day have thoughts that just pop in my head or they feel like they pop in my head, right? They may be triggered by something and I'm not even aware of it. I talk about that a lot with panic disorder, right? If you and I are sitting here just chatting and all of a sudden your heart starts racing, it feels like it's coming out of nowhere. Whereas if you had just run a mile, you obviously know why your heart is racing. Ultimately, if you do research on an education around panic disorder, we actually know our heart is racing as a response to a thought we didn't know we had, um, but we figured it out. Um, and the same thing with thoughts that feel like pop-ins. One of my colleagues would call them pop-ins, right? Um, a thought, you know, I'm just sitting here talking to you and all of a sudden I have this thought of like, oh my God, what if I hurt her? Or, oh my God, my hands aren't clean. Or, oh my God, you know, fill in the blank, whatever. That what if is, and it feels like it's coming from out of the blue, right? And then we start to, in the same way we do with panic disorders, we start to question, what's wrong with me? Why did I have that thought? What does that say about me? And I always tell my clients, we never do that with what quote unquote, what we call positive thoughts, right? Only things that we deem negative or bad. So I would never sit here and go, hmm, some chocolate ice cream right now. Why am I having that thought right now while I'm talking to Christina, right? Like, what, why is that thought? What does that say about me that I want chocolate ice cream, right? Um, now, there's definitely times where we have sort of neutral thoughts where we question why we're having them. Some of my clients with um, relationship OCD, when they're having sex and they have the thought, you know, oh my God, I need to pick up something from Target, they might start to question that, even though the Target thought is a neutral thought, they're still thinking, what does that mean? I'm having that during my sexual relationships with my partner. What does that say? Does that mean I don't really love them? Right. So we have all sorts of thoughts throughout the day and we only really give notice to them when they, when we deem them as bad or negative, right? When we start to judge ourselves, we don't ever question the thoughts that pop in or, or even intentional thoughts. I'm never sitting here going, why right now am I thinking about my groceries? Right. I'm obviously grocery shopping. So that's the, you know, we have those good thoughts. Did I answer your question? Did I miss something? Well, no, I, I think, I think it's, I think it's really good in terms of just hearing even globally that kind of the nature of thoughts. I, I think part of, I guess, if I, maybe I heard it right is we do, I guess, maybe have some automatic thoughts that just kind of are there uh, and we're not always consciously aware of them. and that. Yeah. It sounds like we also do have the capacity to actually intentionally sit down, like you said, and say, okay, I'm going to actually, you know, meal prep or, or, or prep my kind of grocery list and kind of what I need to get. So those, both of those occur. And if I heard you right, what you were saying is one of the things as humans, we tend to really overly pay attention to are things that we would consider as, of course, bad, somehow negative mm -hmm. It kind of reminds me of that concept I learned kind of very early on in in you know 
when I started working with this niche in terms of just the evolutionary standpoint, right? That as Mm -hmm. humans, we're all very negatively biased as it is because we're always going to be skewed towards looking at anything that could be a threat or a danger to us. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. And and to sort of answer the second part of like, does having a thought cause something is we talk in our community, I'm sure you've heard about this, right? And some of of your listeners have is the groinal response. If you are to think about, is some part of my body moving right now, right? Just the, the slight focus on it is going to cause us to feel something, right? And so it's like, okay, you know, our OCD is going to be like, is it the chicken or the egg? And it's going to assume I brought that about as opposed to I'm thinking about this and therefore this is happening. Now, that's not to say if I think about harming somebody that all of a sudden I'm going to harm them, Right is my hand moving, right? And I'm staring at my hand, it's likely to move because I'm staring at it and putting on that concentration. I can tell you of my patients with OCD, they are not more likely to go out and harm somebody or do bad to to their community or be labeled with any negative labels, right? Than the average population. Yeah. So I guess kind of one of the things that comes to mind that I'm I'm going to, again, assume that this person was kind of asking really, right, is that, is there really kind of big difference? And it sounds like, I think part of what I'm kind of thinking is coming up here probably is like, if there is a difference, then how can you really tell? Like if something is, you know, intentional, meaning right. like bad or not, mm-hmm. um, do you have a way to yeah. add some light on that? You know, there are definitely therapists in the community who will label things as this is your OCD and this is not. I personally don't because, again, then we start to label thoughts as good or bad, right? And instead, if we just see all thoughts as thoughts, right, and we're not judging the thoughts, we're mindfully being with them, I'm noticing I'm having this thought, right, then I can just allow that thought to be there. I don't need to act on that thought. I don't need to question whether or not I'm acting on that thought, right? Or what to do in case I act on that thought, right? There's a good friend of mine has said, like, don't try and solve a problem that doesn't yet exist, right? And I use that all the time with my patients. So if I'm sitting here going, oh my God, I have this thought, what happens if I do it? Well, I haven't done it yet. So I don't need to solve that problem. I don't need to figure out whether I'm going to go to jail or I'm going to end up, you know, alone and destitute and childless and all of those things, right? Because right here, right now, I'm just sitting here talking to you about this podcast, right? I could have a million and one thoughts that go through my mind and not act on any of them. And I can't tell you which ones I'm going to act on and which ones I'm not going to right? Now, if we think about it from the standard CBT or cognitive behavioral model, right, is we have thoughts, we have feelings, and we have behaviors. I have zero control over what thoughts pop in my head, and I have zero control over how I feel about something, right? If I tell you, Christina, you should not be anxious about this. It's like, oh, okay, Michelle, right? Or don't be mad at me, right? Like I always tell my clients, you don't get to tell me how I feel. But Behavior-wise, I have a hundred percent control over how I'm going to act on something, right? So if I have the thought, like, "What if this bad thing happens?" You know, I have a knife here. What if I pick it up and stab somebody? Right? I have my kid is upstairs. What if I go upstairs and you know and stab him? Or 
I get 100% control over whether or not I'm going to do anything with that knife. Right? And so I, I have knives all over my kitchen, right? Like a normal average person does, right? I've never done anything with them. And I'm not more likely to do something with them because I have that thought. Yeah. So we're kind of also getting into a little bit of ERP, right? Conversation. Mm -hmm. And, and I, and I actually love that you brought this up because this is also something that I certainly think I've, I've heard people sometimes get kind of confused around things like, first of all, people have this notion like ERP is really scary or it can be really tough, which I'm like, well, I Yes, I guess. And no, Sometimes, right? Like it, it right? just depends, yeah. right? It, it really does depend because you can do things really slowly, systematically, step by step. But the other question that comes up that I've also kind of heard people start to ask and wonder, which I think this is just a great segue to ask that, you know, because part of like ERP is you just said, well, I know that I didn't do that. Right. But then OCD is always going to come back, of course because that's what it does. And, yeah. oh my God, but what if this time, or, you know, okay, well, maybe you didn't then, but you're going to now. So <laughs> this whole concept of living with, with that, right. Cause the whole right. thing of ERP has always been an OCD treatment for the longest time is about uncertainty and entertaining kind of that, you know, you may not know the answer to that right away, <laughs> or you may never know a hundred percent, but you know, are you willing to kind of live with having that be there, but really come back to this moment, right. And kind of be here right. is, is that kind of, because then that kind of, I think people get confused, right? Because it sounds right. like that, that we are having some certainty, but then we're talking about uh, embracing uncertainty. Right. right. Yeah. So well, what I tell my clients is the only two things you can be certain of, actually, there's really three, right? Are death, taxes, and what already happened in the past, right? I know for a fact that I was two minutes late for us chatting, right? <laughs> at at 4.58, I couldn't have told you I was going to be two minutes late. Right. So I have to deal with that uncertainty until it happens. Right. Am I concerned that I will ever stab my child? No. Right. I really don't believe I can I be certain it won't happen? No. I mean, accidents happen, right? Like, you know, how many, how many new parents have ever said, like, I am going to be a hundred percent certain I will never drop my child? I'll tell you. Hopefully my mother-in-law doesn't kill me for sharing this story. She always tells the story of like, she was a pediatric, a NICU nurse when, when my husband and her kids were young. And she had the kids at Disneyland one day in like old school stroller, right? Was pushing my, uh, my youngest brother-in-law and he slid out of the stroller and she rolled over him, right? Here you've got this like pick you nurse who knows how to handle it, right? Right. And totally rolling over her, right? right? <laughs> and so it's like, look, can I promise I'm never going to harm my child? I mean, ideally not intentionally, right? But I, I don't know about the future, right? And do I ever think I would stab somebody? No, but look, this mama bear is going to protect her child. And if somebody were to come, not just someone threaten my child, but like really like hurt my child, right? Like can't quite... I'm not concerned that I'm going to all of a sudden going to lose it. Right. And I think this is where like, I don't need to get into a debate with my mind of like, will this happen or won't this happen? I don't know the future. And if instead I focus on right here, right now, right. Then I don't really need to get into that, you know, that discussion. Again, I don't need to solve a problem that doesn't yet exist. I haven't yet stabbed somebody. So I don't need to worry about whether or not I'm going to. 
That's great. Yeah. So, so then what would you say like for folks who maybe are doing like imaginal exposure scripts, right? Because some of that concept is actually, um, you know, taking your fear and kind of taking it all the way. And, and, and I will put a disclaimer here. I personally loved imaginal scripts. They helped me tremendously before I learned any other therapy modalities for OCD. That was one of my first kind of things or exposure practices to just kind of write it all out mm-hmm. all the way in. And mm-hmm. Again, not everybody, right? Because some, some people, and I've also had clients 100%. who didn't really, you know, didn't really like it, didn't resonate with it as much, right? So, right. It, you know, goes to speak that it, there is an individual kind of process with this. But what would you say to that then? Does that, that kind of might not kind of go together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think first off, when we're, when I'm doing exposure work, right? My job is to challenge my clients to sort of go beyond what we consider you know, normal, right? Um, and we're doing that so that they can see that either the bad thing doesn't happen or they can handle the bad thing, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm not, uh, I'm trying to give an example. Like my child the other day decided to lick, where were we? We were at some restaurant. He decides he's going to lick the chair, right? Oh, gross, right? And also, okay, whatever, right? Now I'm not asking, <laughs> like, my average person that we should all do this, right? But, and I'm not necessarily saying I do that in session, right? Because some people would say that's like more on the extreme end, but I'm definitely going to push my clients past sort of where they normally challenge themselves. The way I, I compare it is like when you're working out with a trainer at the gym, right? When I would work out by myself and I would get tired, I'd be like, mm, I'm okay. I don't need to I don't need one more set, right? But my trainer is going to push me. And the same thing when you're doing exposures and working with a therapist is we're going to kind of go above and beyond a little bit to where you're at with the idea that if you can do that, then you can kind of live within that normal range, right? Um, And I don't need to freak out that my child, you know, he could get sick, right? But I don't need to really freak out about that. With imaginal exposures, it, like you said, it doesn't work for for all my clients. I've used them for many, many years, and I've sort of changed how I do them from when I was first trained to how I do them now. But again, because I'm doing sort of above and beyond, then writing out that script where like this bad thing might happen, that's different than just like sitting there and ruminating in my obsessions and where that gets in the way of my functioning, right? When I'm purposely setting a time, aside time, excuse me, to do an exposure versus like I should be studying right now instead of studying, I'm worrying about whether I'm going to go upstairs and take a knife to my child, right? Yeah. So what would you say, like if somebody, I could imagine anybody listening right now, right? And they're might be thinking, well, what, what do I do if I'm having, you know, some of those really difficult again all OCD is difficult but there are some topics that of course are you know more taboo that that kind of have just a, a ton more kind of guilt mm-hmm. and shame stigma. associated mm-hmm. and stigma 100 yeah. percent, right so what would you say for that in terms of like how they do exposures or yeah like what would they then because we're talking yeah. about like you know part of your is like knowing like okay I like I didn't you know I didn't do anything with kids or I'm not doing anything with family members or like, I, like I, I never had the desire. Like I, you know, we, we talk about ego, ego dystonic, right. Which right. I mean, right. in there, interestingly enough is a clue, right. but of course, like, like all the traditional training never quite addressed that. And okay. I think, you know, we're in general in, in therapy are evolving a bit more and kind of understanding, mm-hmm. you know, other nuances. Right. So like right. something like that, then yeah. What what would you say? Because again, this is like, you know, somebody listening, I could imagine somebody being a little bit kind of pausing, going, wait a second. So yeah. 
do I then entertain the certainty or, but then I saw the thought. So how do I do the imaginal? Right. Right. So when I originally trained in, in OCD treatment back in, you know, like 2004, 2005, whatever is I would have done an imaginal script for it. Right. And written out there. And I've also found as time has gone on, that sometimes people get stuck in ruminating and it's actually doesn't serve as a good exposure. Right. So I might change instead of sitting there and doing an imaginal script, I might do things a little bit differently. Like I love using Mad Libs for that. Right. So they'll like write out a Mad Libs about like, you know, using words around murder and knife or whatever their taboo subject is. Right. And kind of interspersing them. I did one um, with one of my one of my clients. This was one of my favorite exposures I did. We wrote out a little red writing hood and randomly replaced words in little red writing hood with their trigger words. Right. So we're still doing, in a sense, an imaginal script. It just looks a little different than like where I was initially trained. The flip side is also stopping the avoidance, which is what we see a lot with all of these, you know, taboo kind of obsessions is, you know, I'm not going to be around kids if I have thoughts about harming kids or, or doing inappropriate things to kids, or I might, you know, avoid going certain places for certain reasons, right? And so instead of avoiding is not necessarily going out of your way to be somewhere you don't need to be, but making sure to incorporate those things back in your life, right? I had clients who like refused to babysit family members anymore once they had thoughts, right? Or they wouldn't change diapers, right? So engaging them if that's in their world is going back and doing those behaviors and not being ultra careful, right? doing it kind of the average way, the normal way that another person would do it. So it's more focusing on getting back into life as opposed to maybe, you know, everything can be an exposure or anything can be an exposure, right? So it's just kind of getting back into life. Back to your question of like living with that uncertainty is that I don't need to sit there. I don't need to have my clients sit there going, oh my God, did I didn't die? It's like, I don't know if I did or not. And right now I'm doing the dishes. So I'm going to focus on doing the dishes. I don't need to have this argument. Got it. So like, uh, so just like before we might've done hot words or like Mm -hmm. a full script. So again, depending on the person that may be relevant or it may not. And it may Mm -hmm. be like you just said, finding other creative ways of being around hot words or around the topic, but not avoiding it. So you can keep kind of allowing your brain to learn like, Hey, look at what I'm actually doing though. Right. Um, versus getting caught up in the mind, of course. And anybody with OCD listening, we we all know, we all compulsively ruminate sometimes. <laughs> so my last question for you is, um, and I kind of went a little off topic from, from the questions this person posed, but one of them was, how can you manage the guilt associated with having what you perceive to be a thought you intentionally or deliberately thought about? Right. And I think there's a couple of things in this question, and I do want to kind of tease it apart in two steps. Mm-hmm. I think one is, I think globally, I'd love to just have you share with us a little bit about, you know, how does somebody, you know, manage that, those kind of feelings? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the second question here is, you know, kind of like, yeah, when you're perceiving a thought that you had to be intentional, right? So we right. want to be clear, folks, that, you know, I'm going to let you answer, Michelle, but you, you yeah. understand where I'm going with this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and and feel free to follow up if I miss something. So one thing is guilt and shame come from a place of judgment. I'm judging myself based on the shoulds I believe I should have or based on what I think society believes, right? And especially with some of the so many of the um, taboo subjects of OCD, which is where we get, you know, so many uh, ruminations is 
am I a bad person for for having these thoughts, right? And so I'm going to judge myself because I know if you knew what I was thinking about, you'd absolutely judge me. And to some degree, it's true, right? When some of my patients have shared the information with people in their inner circle, people respond with, oh my God, I can't believe you have that thought. That's so weird or whatever, right? And so then we get that feedback from the world of like, oh my God, I must be a bad person, right? And so we start judging ourselves. If we can, again, recognize and step back, you know, use a little bit of act and cognitive diffusion and noticing that we're having these thoughts as opposed to, you know, let me back up a second. When we have a thought, we tend to believe it because it's coming from our brain and we buy into that thought because the only thing I feel like I can trust if I can't trust the world out there is my brain, right? I've got to be able to trust my brain. If my brain is saying it, therefore it must be true. And it's part of me. And we get so looped into that, that if I'm having this thought, then there, you know, I must be bad and it, you know, it's, it must be true. And so we get stuck in that thought process and that cycle. And we need to be able to step back from that and see it as a thought. And again, I go to a more neutral or what we might think of as like positive thoughts. And if I had the thought, hmm, I feel like some chocolate ice cream tonight for dessert, right? I'm not going to feel any guilt and shame around that unless I have, you know, body image and, and eating disorder, you know, concerns as well, right? But generally speaking, or like if I say, oh, I want to see Barbie this weekend. You know, I'm not going to sit there and judge myself. Why would I want to see Barbie? Like, what does that say about me? Right. And so it's, it's where we question these things and where we judge ourselves for having these thoughts. Right. And the reality is, is that every human has negative thoughts or what we quote on negative thoughts, right? Whether it's about ourselves, whether it's about somebody else, um, we have so many biases and that's a word. Um, there's and and you know in in the last couple of years, even recognizing myself like things that I don't necessarily want to think about, but recognize that my brain is thinking about right. And some of it has come from the environment in which I've gr- grown up in, or beliefs I've had, or beliefs those around me have had, and um, just allowing that thought to be there and recognizing and not necessarily judging myself for that thought and recognizing you you mentioned something about ego dystonic, right? And egocentric is that if something doesn't align with my values, A, I don't need to act on it. And B, I can start to educate myself about how to learn otherwise, right? And I'm, I'm sort of talking more globally, right? If I have thoughts about, um, you know, let's see uh, what somebody looks like, for example, or um, where, some, you know, somebody was born and raised, right? Is that, you know, if I'm like, oh, those thoughts that I'm having don't align with who I want to be, then I get to go educate myself on that, right? So really taking a step back when we start to judge ourselves for these thoughts and recognizing if that everybody has intrusive thoughts, right? They might not be the same, but everybody has intrusive thoughts, right? And so it's like, I know, or I believe we get into the mind reading that if you knew exactly what I was thinking, you judge me. But the reality is, is that you might be thinking something similarly or something, you know, quote unquote, negatively as well. And recognizing that we're human, right? And we need to have some self-compassion for ourselves. Yeah. So kind of, if I may, part of what I'm hearing you say in terms of the, that management, and I kind of come back to this a lot, is one, self-awareness, 
Two is, of course, being, you know, self-compassionate, which really means being kinder to yourself and how you talk to yourself. And it sounds like three, it is changing that inner conversation so that you're not, you know, kind of letting that inner critic, if you will, right, badger yourself and beat yourself up, but actually be able to come back and, and reconnect to that perspective and, and awareness and, and recognition of what is actually happening. Yeah. 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 Very on point. All right. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and just kind of getting into this. I know there's a lot of conversations out there about different modalities. And I think it's just important that we keep having conversations and, you know, for people to continue to learn and to know that, you know, nobody's doing anything wrong. Just learn the different things, do whatever, you know, feels good for you or resonates because most importantly, it's just about getting better. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So what would be one thing that you would like to leave our um, listeners with? Oh my God. Great question. And I always hate that question. (laughs) Just know that you're not alone, right? So many of our patients, we just, you and I just got back from the conference this year and it's amazing how many people have never met somebody else who has OCD, who suffers with OCD, never talked to anybody. And just know that there's a community out there. I mean, social media has made it so much easier because we can find other people who are struggling it. There's Reddit, you know, discussions, there's TikToks on it, there's, you know, Instagram handles. And so people have been able to, but it's, it's just know that you're not alone and that there is help out there. And to reach out to somebody that you feel that you can trust or feel safe to you, um, because there's information, right? And, and you can get help and you can find support and you can find a community to connect with. Amazing. I think that message needs to be said a thousand times over. Um, so how can anybody find you if they'd like to find you? Yes. Uh, my website is anxietytherapyla.com. Um, that's the best place. I have a social media and I, I post on my social media as I feel fit. I try not to get into like, I have to post, I have to post. So I'll go through phases where I'll post a ton and then not at all. So I'm not super active, but you can find me on Instagram under anxietytherapyla. But yeah, my website is typically and then random things like podcasts and whatnot. I love it. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us on the OCD Whisperer podcast. Remember, your path to freedom from OCD, it's a journey. Visit www.onlineocdacademy.com for self-help masterclasses that fit your journey, your pace, and your budget. We understand that not everybody can afford a specialist, and that's why we're here to provide accessible resources. Subscribe, rate, and share. And together, we can overcome the challenges of OCD. Stay strong, and we'll catch you on the next episode.